This uh, final exhortation of the year, as it were, is found in the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews, where the writer to the Hebrews gives this encouraging exhortation. It is found in the very first verse of the 13th chapter, and it reads as such. Let the love of the brethren continue. Once more, let the love of the brethren continue. The last chapter of the book of Hebrews is, in a special sense, a whole series of exhortations. The last chapter is viewed by many theologians in a variety of ways. It has been described as a, a loose string of an assortment of practical, social, and religious exhortations. Another theologian has said that the Apostles' Papyrus is coming to an end. And he therefore issues a few staccato, that is, variety pieces of counsel to the Hebrew Christians because he is coming to the end of the page, as it were. But I do think it is possible for us to view this 13th chapter in a, in a rather different way. In a way in which I would like to suggest to you this morning as the framework by which we will be studying God's word this morning. From the beginning of the 12th chapter, the Apostle Paul, we believe to be the Apostle Paul, has been describing the Christian life as a race. You've heard that before. A race to be run. And we are frequently reminded of that metaphor that he uses, that the Christian life is, is like a race. And those of you who have been a Christian for any amount of time, you have experienced, and I think you know by now, that the Christian life is, is more like a marathon, a long-distance marathon, rather than a 100-meter dash. It is a race, yes, but it is a long, long race. And the apostle is speaking to us about our need to persevere in this long marathon. And as we persevere, the, the way that we are to persevere, the way that we are to run this race is to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. This race that we are running is to be run with our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Now it seems that these uh, practical exhortations in the 13th chapter of Hebrews can really be seen as flowing out of the idea of a Christian running a race. Meaning this, that as we read these final exhortations in the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews, we are to read them with the mindset that I am running a race. Why? Well, because when you are running an ordinary race, meaning a race in our context, in our terms, but also a race in the context in which this apostle was obviously thinking, the Greek Olympic Games, a course is marked out for you when you are running a race. There are guidelines that are 
printed on the ground or there are guidelines that are printed or posted somewhere so that you might see the exact limits within which you are running. Therefore, you are not running aimlessly, but there is a direction in your run. In other words, it's not just the case of running any way that you would like to and running in any kind of path that you choose. I'm that kind of runner. Uh, I don't like to lift weights. It, it annoys me, actually. I love to run. And I'm the kind of runner that when I go out to run, I like to find areas that no one has ever run before. I like to make new paths. If everybody's running on the bluffs, I'll be down at the bottom and among the marsh, finding places. And it's happened to me before. I fell into a completely, a, a complete... Um, something of water that looked like it was just a puddle, and I went all the way down. It was fun. The race is specific. It's to be run within certain guidelines that have been laid down for us. There is a sense in which these practical verses in the 13th chapter are the very guidelines the apostle gives us for running the race of Christianity. There's nothing vague there. There's nothing vague about the directions of running the Christian life. It's not just, uh, just go run and, and find out for yourself. There are absolute guidelines and directions as to how we are to run, to where we are to run. And as we persevere in godliness, we are to run with our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Nothing vague about that direction is there. Not just run until you're tired. Run, and as you run, keep your eyes fixed on him. But there are more. There are more guidelines to just simply keeping your eyes fixed upon Jesus. There are more guideposts, more than just keeping your eyes fixed upon Jesus. That is the goal. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. That is the, the end game, is, if you will, for us. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. But as we get to that finish line, there are more practical guidelines along the way. And here in this 13th chapter, there are at least 10 guidelines from verses 1 through 17. And I will say to you this morning, we're not going over all 10. But over time, I would like to look at all 10 with you. But this morning, we will deal with just, just the one. And it is, again... As we are keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus, there is a guideline for us. There is a guidepost that lets us know, here it is, that you are going in the right direction. And it is this, let the love of the brethren continue. The apostle has gone to great lengths in the past 12 chapters of the book of Hebrews to teach and to explain great doctrines. And now the apostle is giving us a kind of therefore. That is, in light of all that has been taught, we are to use all of the teachings that have been given to us as a root and foundation for everyday living. The apostle is giving to us, as it were, practical counsel for practical situations in daily Christian living. That is often the pattern of the, the epistles, isn't it? 
The apostles will more often than not take up great doctrinal teachings and then apply them all the way down to the most practical and everyday kind of situations of our lives. And the first of these practical guidelines is the, listen to the word now, exercise. For we are not, for, for we are running a race, are we not? The exercise of brotherly love. And, and let, let me just say so that we all are on the same page. When I say brotherly love, I also mean sisterly love. That is love between the brothers and sisters. But did you notice the word there? It is the exercise of brotherly love. That is, if we are to run this race, and if we are to reach the finish line of Christ, then we have to exercise or practice brotherly love with those with whom we are running. That is not at all the atmosphere in which the modern games, we have our Olympic Games coming up next year. That is not at all in which the modern games are played, is it? That is not at all the, the games in which the Greek Olympic Games were played, was it? When they ran, they ran with rivalry on their minds. When they ran, they ran with competitiveness in their hearts. When they ran, they ran with fierce envy upon their minds. There's even a spirit of bitterness between competitors. But dear ones, the Christian race, the apostle is saying, is to be run with the kind of brotherly love which will encourage one another to persevere in this marathon. Imagine the whole, the whole atmosphere that will pervade this race. It's not selfish. It's not about me and, and can I get there first. But rather, the whole atmosphere is a, a brotherly burden for those who are running with me. <laughs> Imagine that. We are concerned with those who are running with us. Why? So that they, they too may persevere. So that they too may reach the finish line. So that they might, miss, they might not miss the guidelines and the guideposts that will get them to the finish line. That though we all are all running, that we might encourage those who are running through tough patches, as it were, who are maybe running through or running up difficult hills and who find it difficult to, to even take one more step that we would be mindful of them and say to them, come on, don't stop, keep running. The race is not yet over. That we may say to them, that we may be saying to them, press on. Onward we go in Christ, to Christ. Though it is true that in one sense I, I am keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus. I am doing this. I, I don't know about him or I don't know about her, but you would be missing one of the guideposts if you did not know about him or if you did not know about her. 
I, in one sense, I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus, but in another sense, this will involve me keeping my eye on you and her. If I am to keep my eyes on him, one of the ways that I do that is by keeping my eyes on you. Remembering that you're running with me. Sometimes I would go for runs. Armando is here, and he would try to do this for me, to me from time to time. We were supposed to run together, and he'd just run past me, and I thought, I thought we were running together. He's pointing at me as if I, I used to do that. I thought we were running together, brother. And all of a sudden, as we're running, and he can remember this, there would be times where we were supposed to be just running together, and all of a sudden I can feel his speed picking up, and now my speed needs to pick up. And you're going too fast for me, and all of a sudden you're gone, and, and I thought we were running together. But it's a paradigm shift, isn't it? The apostles making this great contrast, and the great contrast is between the Greek Olympic Games of his time, and even of our time, or any other kind of worldly race. And in those races, it's every man for himself. You know that, whether you are a runner or whether you are a, a, any other kind of sport. Even chess, let, let's checkers, it's every man for himself. Uno, let's, whatever. <laughs> but let's take, for example, the example of a race. You have prepared. You are now come to the starting line. And I can remember my, me and my dad and my siblings watching the, the Olympics and, and, and watching Carl Lewis was one of our favorite runners and, and Jackie Joyner Kersey, for those of you who were born in the 80s and grew up in the 80s, watching them prepare that starting line. And, and as they are looking at each of their, for some of you who are modern Usain Bolts, they are looking at their competitors. They are measuring them up, as it were. They are looking for cracks in their armor. They are looking for weaknesses in their approach. They are seeking out ways in which they might conquer them. That's the way world, the world runs the race. But in this Christian race, it's not every man for himself. It is every man for his brother. It is every man for his brother. It is even every man for his brother over himself. Do you see Christianity that way? Are you experiencing the race in that kind of way? It's a very interesting thing. If you look back to Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, which is a comparable passage in many ways, the apostle brings his practical exhortation to the church there and in Rome, and you will find the same kind of emphasis as he urges them to love one another with brotherly affection. And here's what he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And here's what he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Notice the idea of competitiveness that is being brought to the second half of this verse. Outdo one another. But in showing honor to one another. In the games that you all know about, competitiveness was expressed in outdoing one another to seek honor for yourself. It was win at all costs. It is strived to be the absolute greatest so that you might be proclaimed the greatest of all time. But the Apostle Paul introduces a different kind of competitiveness. 
it's 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 not worldly it's otherworldly it's that kind of competitiveness that we have in Christ the kind of competitiveness that we have in this christian race it's an outdoing one another and showing honor to one another what an amazing command isn't it and I'm going to, because he's not a believer, and so I'll throw it out there. Yesterday was a time to honor my mother. And there was one speaker who, when he began to speak, it sounds like he was honoring himself. Those of you who were there are automatically laughing. You know who that was. And I, I had a flashback of the times when my dad used to threaten me that if you say something you should not be saying, I'm going to take the microphone away from you. I was that close. When we are running the Christian life, we are never honoring ourselves. It is always honoring Christ. It is always seeking how I might do good to someone else. Not sitting back and waiting and saying, when's someone going to do good for me? I've been in this church all of this time. I've been waiting for somebody in my quarter. Nobody's noticing me. I'm waiting for someone to come and do good to me. But that's not what the, what the apostle is calling us to do, is it? He's saying, rather than you waiting for someone in your corner to come and do good to you, get out of your corner and go, go, go do good to someone else. Outdo one another in honor. Have you ever, have you ever wondered why you have been given a competitive spirit? We all have it, don't we? Some have this competitive spirit more than others. Uh, some, you, you can't even walk into a, a store with them because they want to see who will get there first. My son is one of those. Why have you been given this competitive spirit? Here is what it is for. Not that it might be consumed on ourselves, but you have been given a competitive spirit so that you might do out, might outdo one another in seeking to show honor and preferment and brotherly affection to one another. Have you thought about that? How might I do good to someone this week? How might I give someone a call or an encouraging text or ask someone, is there something that I can do for you? My dear brothers and sisters, if we live this way, all of us, what a difference it would make in our Christian race. If all of us had a commitment to live this way, what a difference it would make in our Christian race. What a difference it would make in our church when people are struggling and going through difficulty. We would turn to them and say, look, take my hand. I will run with you. I will not let your hand go. Run with me. Imagine that. Imagine a marathon. Have you seen marathons? Watch the Olympics this year, this summer when it comes. 
When the marathon starts, there's maybe 20 or 30 people, and they all come to the starting block, and they're all trying to find their way to the front. And once the gun goes off, they are all pushing and shoving to get to the front. Imagine this. Imagine if the race started like this. When everyone came to the starting block, they all lined up. And rather than them all taking a step forward to see who's going to get there first, they all grabbed hands. And when the gun went off, they all began to run together. We see little children do that sometimes, don't we? But that is the picture and the imagery that the apostle is trying to convey to us. That running the Christian race is a matter of grabbing one another's hands and not letting go until we all get there. Until we all get there. The Christian race is total deferment. It's seeking the good of others above your own. That is the brotherly love that we must all have for one another. That we would consider ourselves not above one another, but among one another. And this is so much what Christ has displayed for us, right? Brothers and sisters, did you not know that it is not uh, love and hatred that are the opposites? But the true opposites are this. Love and self-love are the opposites. This is one of the places where we are deeply challenged in our running this Christian race. Because if we're fixing our eyes on Christ, then Christ is our example. And what example has Christ shown us He has laid down his life for his brothers. He has washed his brother's feet. Well, if Christ is our goal, and if it is is to Christ that we are running to, then it is that example of Christ that we must follow. And I think the sad thing is that we love ourselves far too much. And the great challenge for the believer, all believers, is to ask the Lord to put Help us to put ourselves to death, to put our self-love to death, that we might reflect more of him and less of us. That is the example Christ has given us. That he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, as a thing to be held on tightly unto, but that he made himself nothing. And we are to do the same. And we are to do the same. I think the reason why so many people as Christians are discouraged and sometimes find themselves cast down is because there are far too many Christians who are absorbed with themselves and their own little circle. And I think that for many of us, we must confess that we have let our brother's hand go and that we have been running this Christian race not with brotherly love, but with love for ourself and ourself alone. John thirteen thirty five, Jesus said, All will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love yourself. All will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. 
Love for the disciple. Love for those who confess Christ. It is one of the badges of the Christian religion. Love for the brethren is one of the ways that we display that we have been changed by the power of the gospel. And to an onlooking world, it's attractive. It's not regenerating. We'll get to that later. But it is attractive. In John, 1 John three fourteen, the apostle says that one of the signs that we have been brought from death to life is that we love the brethren. One of the ways that you know you have been regenerated, saved, bought by the blood of Christ, is that you love your brother in Christ. It's at this point, I think, that we must acknowledge that this is not always an enjoyable command, is it? Love the brethren. It hurts at times, doesn't it? It costs at times, doesn't it? It breaks you and I and also the ones we are trying to love at times, doesn't it? But even though it hurts, it's not a negotiable command. It's a command from the Lord. And desire for this command also is not an automatic desire sometimes. It's something that needs to be cultivated. It's something that needs to be worked at. And effort needs to be put forth for this command to be real in our lives. Have you noticed that the scriptures, they use a very unique word to describe those who share your faith in Christ. And I heard it all this morning and I heard it yesterday. It's funny because I heard it yesterday at a party where there was a mingling, if you will. There was a mingling of unsaved and saved people. And for those who were saved, they said to each other this. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. For those who were not saved, there was simply an introducing of names. But for those who were recognizable brothers and sisters in Christ, there was a word that they used. It was brother. It was sister. Those who are of the faith, those that share your faith in Christ, the Bible calls them, God calls them, therefore, your brother and your sister. Dear ones, Everyone is our neighbor, but not everyone is our brother and sister. We owe love to our neighbors because they are created in the image of God, but we owe a unique love, a peculiar love to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Many of us don't want to say amen. Many of us would like to simply come to church, say brother and sister to each other, but not treat each other like brothers and sisters throughout the week. They are called brothers and sisters. Why? Because we share the same father. God. We share the same relationship in Christ. He is our high priest king. They our brothers and sisters like us, we, they, we, we've been united to Christ. They, like us, have been adopted by God in Christ. And we have been united to Christ and they, too, into this spiritual, eternal 
family called the church. Eternal family called the church. Our connection one to another. It's not based on social status. It's not based upon ethnic background. It's not based upon shared culture or life experiences, whatever kind of upbringing you've had. It's not based upon national connections or civil connections. Because if it was based on those things, many of us, if we were honest with ourselves, would not be here. Most of us, if we are honest with ourselves, would not be here. Rather, our connection, our union is based upon the finished work of Christ and our being grafted into the family of faith. We are here because of Christ. We are united and related by blood. The blood of Christ. It has been said in terms of natural family ties that, well, you know, blood is thicker than water. Some of you may even say to some of your family members, we're blood. I saw a lot of blood family members yesterday. And they do not have the connection that you and I have. Why? Well, blood may be thicker than water. But blood is not thicker than the grace found in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is there that there is a bond that is greater. It is there that there is a tie that cannot be untied. It is there that the bond of Christ makes those who call upon his name, makes them one, and they are a family that will be a family forever. You, therefore, you are my brother. You are my sister. Dustin, who's not in here right now, walked past my brother, who looks a lot like me, my older brother, and said, is that your brother? I hit him and I said, no, you're my brother. And he is in a realer sense. Those who are our brothers and sisters share in the benefits that our Lord brings to sinners who by his grace have been made saints. With these saints, we share those things that Christ has given us. Imagine, with these saints who are here, you share forgiveness. You share grace. You share adoption. You share justification, sanctification. And ultimately, you will be glorified with these who are here. It is these things that I've just said, these, these wonderful eternal truths, and so much more that we commonly share with these who we call brothers and sisters that we do not share with those who are actually physically our brothers and sisters my son from time to time likes to call me brother i believe it's true i'm his father and he would never disrespect me he knows that but he understands the spiritual reality of that eternal truth he is my brother in christ these are eternal things that matter more than any of the things that we commonly share with each other. And it is these common commonalities that we have in Christ that we must value most. If you value your political stance more than your stance in Christ, then you show where your true brotherhood lies. 
if you are more staunchly connected to the fact that you are a Republican or a Democrat, more than the fact that you are a child of God in Christ Jesus, you show where your allegiance lies. If you are more connected to the fact that you are a Filipino or a Mexican or an African or a European or an Asian, more than you are the fact that you are a a person in Christ, then you show where your true brotherhood lies. This is why I don't give you jokes about tacos. This is why I don't give you jokes about uh, tamales and adobo. Because then I would be speaking to one specific crowd. This is why when we come, we bring the gospel that is, is not uh, connected to any specific culture. But we bring the gospel that is connected to the word of God and the word of God alone. There are those who might be hearing this message on the podcast who would never know what kind of demographic we have in this church. And they should not know because the gospel has no demographic. The gospel is for every nation, tribe, and tongue. And when the gospel is preached properly, it looks like what we have here today. People from different backgrounds, people from different ethnic cultures, people from different social statuses, people who have different political affiliations, and they do not matter because they all go out the door when we come into this family of faith and worship Christ. And that, my dear friends is the true power of the gospel. That it brings all of these different people from all of these different backgrounds and we come together under the banner of Christ and Christ alone. We value any of these other ties more than the tie that we have in Christ. We show whom we are really tied to. You have the most in common with those who are of the household of faith. And we are called to love them in a peculiar, peculiarly different kind of way. What does it mean to love the brethren? We've already discussed some of this this morning, honoring them, not seeing them as your competitor, but as your brother, wanting to do good to them. This is all really a heart attitude, isn't it? It is a principled heart commitment to do whatever God has commanded us to do in order to secure the well-being of our beloved brother or sister in Christ. Should we love our lost family members? Of course we, we should. Yes, we should. Share the, the way that you show that you love them is share the gospel with them. Show, them. show them kindness that is only found in Christ. Show them that you have been transformed. Show them that you are no longer who you used to be. But should that love for them look the same as your love for the saints? Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. The scripture says that we should do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. There should be a peculiar type of love exhibited by brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that mean that your love for them will always be perfect? No. As a matter of fact, you will often find it is not perfect. But they are saints of God. And you are commanded by God to love them in a different kind of way. According to Hebrews 13.1, we are required to exert acts of love toward other saints because they are lovable. Those of you who are listening should smile now because it's not the case. We do not exert peculiar kinds of acts of love toward the saints because they are lovable. 
But we exert these peculiar kinds of acts of love toward the saints because they are saints. Because they share in the things that Christ brings to gospel-believing sinners. That is the command. This morning I have six very brief exhortations for you in terms of our love for the brethren that flow out of this one verse. Number one, why do you have brothers and sisters? It's a question. You ever stop to think about that? Why have you been afforded this privilege? And do you see it as a privilege? You and I are, were fallen in Adam. We were lost without a hope or desire to rescue ourselves from our wretched state. But God, who was rich in mercy, brought us out of darkness and into his light. He showed us our sin, our need to be forgiven. He showed us Christ, and in faith, the faith that we were given, we ran to him. Therefore, we are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. And why do we now have brothers and sisters? Because just as I am no longer in Adam, but I am now in Christ, so too they, they who sit among you, they are no longer in Adam. But now they are in Christ, just as I am in Christ, now they are in Christ. How did this happen? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 tells us, it was the work of God. What we see here today, those who are from different backgrounds, from different social statuses, and etc., etc., this is the work of God. This could only be the work of God. And have you stopped to think about that lately? Have you looked around when you've come into church and rather than thinking about how tired I am? I'm really not feeling good today. I should have just stayed home. I've got so many things to do on the Lord's Day. I've got so many things to do. Yesterday was a long day. I wish I could just sleep in. Rather than thinking of all of those things when you come in, have you ever stopped and surveyed those who are sitting here? And rather than saying, well, there's Doreen in her normal seat. There's Bobby in the back like he usually is. Rather than saying those normal things that you say about people when they come in, saying to yourself, my God, what a marvelous thing it is. That just as I have been brought from darkness to light, death to life, so has she. So has he. Have you ever thought about that when you've come into this place? Or with joy, there is Tony. What a joy it is to see him. There is Anthony. What a joy it is to see him. There is Scott. What a joy it is to see my brother or my sisters here. God in his mercy, brothers and sisters, not in his hatred. Not in his burden. God in his mercy has given you brothers and sisters in Christ. We were born, John says, not, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man. We were born of God. 
Have you thought of that amazing fact lately? That amazing grace that has evaded your soul has invaded theirs too. This should do something to us. That we have this amazing grace, this eternal bond with each other in Christ. I'll see you in a million years. Hopefully that brings a smile to some of your faces. Not a whole gosh. You know that you can meet a total stranger. A total stranger. Find out that they are in Christ and immediately you are bound together. Immediately you are bound together. Immediately you have more in common with them than you do your unbelieving brother and sister. A total stranger. It's a shame to hear a believer say, I don't like Christians. <laughs> you hear Christians say that about other Christians? I don't like Christians. Christians are weird. Speaking as a Christian. I, I get along better with unbelievers. I wonder why. I wonder why. I acknowledge that there are some very strange Christians. I am one of them. I acknowledge that, that they are even, some of them, although they are strange, they are properly called Christians. Because they are those who trust in Christ. And we are called to love them in all of their weirdness, in all of their quirks, in all of the things that, they, that you can't stand about them. You are to call to love them. Listen, look in the mirror. You're not so perfect yourself. We are so quick to be so negative about every single thing that all the people that we call Christians and brothers and sisters, all of the things that we don't like about them. Go look in the mirror. Spend some time there. Or do this. Ask someone close to you. Tell me some of the things that get on your nerves. And listen, if they're telling you five, someone else has got ten. Trust me. Remember, we are all a work in progress. We're not the finished product yet. We should never act as though we are the finished product. We've been given brothers and sisters in Christ. I said briefly, didn't I? Number two, the saints are the excellent ones. Now, that may sound like a weird statement, but it comes from the scriptures. Psalm 16.3, the uh, King David says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones, or the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight. Have you ever contemplated on why David calls the saints majestic or excellent ones? Have you spent time with believers and concluded after you've spent time with them, they are majestic? Oh, uh, dear wife, they are the majestic ones. No, I think most of the time that we spend with someone, we usually walk away and we talk about all of the things that we can't stand about them. But David observes the saints and says, as for the saints, they are the majestic ones. They are the excellent ones. David thinks about the saints and concludes majestic. Why? Because they are the work of God's grace. And they may not be prized by you and I, but they are prized by God. God thought enough of them to save them. God has been merciful to them, and so should we. 
We are to cultivate this attitude toward believers because God has set his peculiar redemptive love upon them. Therefore, we consider them as blessed ones on the earth, excellent ones in God's sight. And if that is how God sees them, that is how we must see them. A challenge, yes. I think all of us, if we were to, uh, if the scriptures had fill in the blanks, we might say, as for the saints on the earth, they are the ones who annoy me most. If we were to fill in the blank, we might say, as for the saints on the earth, they are the ones who offend me most. They disappoint me most. They often leave me most. But irrespective of their faults, they are saints. They are the people of God. And we are to have this distinct mindset toward them. It's so easy to be negative, isn't it? It's so easy to always be negative. Don't you hate being around people like that? Always complaining about something. Are we full of faults? The church said. Oh, well, just a few then. Are we full of faults? Yes, we are. But we are forgiven sinners. And you are my spiritual sibling. Therefore, I love you. And I won't let anybody talk bad about my spiritual sibling. Because let me tell you this. If you came to me and you had a bunch of negative things to say about my sister Rose, we would have some talk. That's my sister. Physical and spiritual. So I would have some things to say about that. If you want to come and talk about now my spiritual brothers, I should say, now, hold on a second. They are a saint. Do they have faults? Yes. Do they have issues in their lives? Yes. But I love them, and you should too. And if you have any issues with them, go to them. Because I think they can, they, there are things that can be worked out with them. You owe them that kind of peculiar love. This is an argument sometimes for people to say, I'm not going to church. They're all hypocrites there. I'm not going to church. They, they have all of these kinds of faults. But brother and sister, if you are a fault finder and you based all of your love upon the faults that people do not have, well, then you will find that you will never love anybody. And you will also find that you're not being honest with yourself either. I won't go to church because those people don't love anybody anymore. So you forsake your love from them because you say they're not loving anybody. How hypocritical is that? They are the saints. Let me say briefly, love believes the best about others. Love hopes the best about others. And we all need to make this practice, don't we? We should, and especially with the brothers and sisters, if someone is speaking negatively, let's say, let's hope the best about them. You know what? I know that that's a truth. Let's just believe the best about them. Oh, you're being too spiritual. Isn't that what we're called to be? Third, let's move quickly. I'm sorry. We must prefer the needs of others above our own. We've said this before. Again, Romans 12:10. Prefer one another in honor. This doesn't mean that you are to neglect your own legitimate needs, but it does mean that when an opportunity arises to defer to someone else, we should be eager to do so. It's a sign that we've been brought and bought by the grace of God. Number four, confess your sins. This is how we love each other. James 5 says we are to confess our sins one to another. Uh, I'm sorry, James 5, 16. We are to confess our, our sins to one another. 
this assumes that we will sin against each other. It also assumes that it is your duty to go and ask for forgiveness. It assumes that you allow that person to come and repent to you. Not just say, they have done me wrong. Every time they come around, I will avoid them. If they sit on the left side, I'll sit on the right side. If they're walking out that door, I'll go out that door. That's not the way the people of God behave. And I have been saved now for 21 years. And I have seen, sadly, over and over again, Christians just simply not willing to come and talk. And also, not willing to forgive. Amazing. Amazingly sad. Am I guilty of that too? Of course I am. I'm trying to be better though. I'm trying to be more mature and say, hey, if you've got something, come and tell me. I think I'm, I'm at least aware of the fact that I am not perfect enough to say you're right. You saw that. I'm surprised you didn't see much more. Because there's a lot more to be seen. <laughs> we need to be humble, brothers and sisters. James is writing to fellow believers and calling them to accept the fact that we are all in process of being sanctified. That we're all going to fail. And when we do, we must confess that and not harbor resentment toward one another. It's childish, isn't it? It's childish. Let me tell you what else it is. It's what an unbeliever does. It's not just immature. It's what unbelievers do. Pray that you not hold and harbor resentment in your heart toward anyone. Fifthly, moving quickly, and when someone comes to confess, forgive. Forgive each other. This is the way that we show love toward one another. Uh, when, and if you're taking notes, write this word. When, not if, sinned against by a brother or sister, remember that you only have two options. It's not forgive or not forgive. They're both loving options. You may choose to cover the sin with love or drop it altogether. Meaning it doesn't even exist. Oh, what are you talking about? Oh, I didn't even think about it. Or, brother, I, I accept your forgiveness or your apology and I forgive you and I love you. There's two options. I don't even know what you're talking about. No big deal. Or yes, I, I receive, I know what you're talking about. I acknowledge there was a sin there and I forgive you for it. What kind of wonderful race would this be if that happened all the time? If that's the way we dealt with our conflict. The way that we most often deal with our conflict is, I'm done. I'm done. Right? We must repent for our mindset that wants to hold that matter and water that matter and make it grow and, and pick fruit off of it and give fruit to other people and say, taste this. It's bitter, isn't it? It's because of him. We cannot be people of the book if we live that way. We, we must not, we must never be a believer who says, I'm done. Listen, I'm saying that because I've said that. Many a times, I'm done. I don't care. I'm done. Not with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I can't do that. 
what kind of believer would I be if that's how I acted? First Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Love searches out ways to minimize faults in others. It does not maximize faults in others. It acknowledges faults, yes. They're a mess. We're a mess. But it does not expose it unless it needs to be exposed. We must avoid slander and unkindness. That does, that's not covering sin. That's not love. Love does not bring up sins. It doesn't make mountains out of molehills. Sometimes love does not even confront the person's fault. It just covers it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Husbands and wives, you know about that. You know, there's a whole bunch of things you would love to confront. But you know that as husbands and wives, you have to say, I, I need to pick my battles. Am I going to make this a big deal or am I going to let it go? And is every time something happens, is that going to always be a big deal? You'll be in World War Three, Four, Five, if you do this every single time. You've learned what it is to cover sin with love. Do you know that your marriage is a temporal relationship? But that your love or that your relationship to brothers and sisters is an eternal one that will last longer than your marriage? Except my wife's and I, of course. I was, I'm going to come find you in heaven. You better not be talking to... No, I'm just playing. Just play. There will be no sin there. There will be no jealousy, all that. I'm just playing. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. They don't need to make your list every time they do something against you. There's a wrestler, and I, I, I hate to use this crude example, but it's one that I think is important. There's a list. Uh, there's a, a wrestler. His name is Chris Jericho, and one of his sticks was... Anytime someone did something against him, whether they said a word wrong against him or they uh, did not speak to him properly, he would say, you know what, Nazareth, Nazareth, you just made the list. And he would write down their name on, on a list. And he had this long list of people that he was going to pay back one day for all the things that they've done against him. We can't be that kind of people. Throw away your list if you have one. Burn it in the grace that God has given to you. I say burn it in the grace because grace burns all of our sins. It dissolves them. Restore such people with gentle kindness. I know that's hard. I'm speaking to myself more than you. You can graciously confront a sinning brother but you can do so with the goal of restoring that brother. Not that we are seeking to hold something over their head or present ourselves as more superior to them. Look, look how much you've done to me. I've done nothing to you. No, it's difficult not to hold a grudge, isn't it? I, I know, trust me. But we must remember that, that love for the brethren, it's not an option, it's a command. Keep short accounts with others. This is the holy life that God is calling us to. We must remember that we don't get to choose the commands that God is calling us to, that we must obey them all. And finally, by this kind of love, we are witnesses to the world 
but it is not a means of evangelism. I hope that that's clear. We're, we're witnesses, but it's not the means of evangelism. I, and what I mean by that is, and I'll explain in a moment, we ought to be evangelistic, brethren. We ought to show love toward one another as well. By this, all men will know that we are disciples of Christ. It's leverage in witnessing to the world. But there is no sinner who will watch your love for one another and then become regenerated. Someone has said before, just be kind to people and they're going to see it. Yes, they're going to see it, but they're not going to be saved. People don't get, don't get saved by your kindness. They become intrigued by your kindness. It is only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves sinners. Your example will become tasteful to sinners. It won't regenerate a sinner. But that does not mean that you are not to love one another with the mindset or with the awareness that people are watching. How does the church act toward one another? What a joy it is to see you stay afterwards and love each other. It's appealing. It's a hook. It's not the spear, though. Only the gospel spears the heart, penetrates the heart. It may draw them in, but only the grace of God will keep them here. People from different backgrounds, ages, loving each other. That's the power of the gospel. You must use words, though. Someone has said, uh, some foolish person has said, uh, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. No, preach the gospel, and you must use words. His word. God has ordained his word as the tool in which he will save people from their sins. And bring them into light. This is going to hurt us often. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be uh, trying at times. But let me say to you, brothers and sisters, that it is for these saints that God has called you to show a, a peculiar kind of love. Loving the saints involves getting out of your comfort zones for the sake of others. And often at great cost. What does it mean? Does it mean that I only go to the same place of worship as you? No. Prayer will cost you time. Pray for the saints outside of church. It, it will mean that you need to be hospitable, not just to believers, but even also to unbelievers. But especially to believers. Invite someone over to your home or go out to eat with someone. Christ laid down his life so that we might lay down our lives for each other. Since Christ has laid down his life for me, we should lay down our lives for one another. I know that's a lot, isn't it? A lot of exhortations that seem to be practical, and they are. But the reminders of so many ways that we need to be loving the saints better. This new year, brothers and sisters, think of ways that you might, as you keep your eyes fixed on Christ how you might love the saints in a more peculiar way. Let's pray.